We're going to start back in verse 19, but we're going to focus on 21 to 23. So this is John 20, verse 19. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for, were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the, the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Pause. If you can't tell, this is just after Jesus' resurrection. And Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. This is God's word. On December 21st, 1968, the Apollo 8 spacecraft holding three men, Frank Mormon, James Lovell, and William Anders, became the first manned spacecraft to leave Earth's atmosphere. These three men had trained and set out to accomplish that had, a mission that had long been laid out for them, which was this, round the moon and back. In the midst of all the calculations and challenges associated with lunar exploration, those men could be sure that the target wasn't going to shift from exactly that, round the moon and back to Earth. Not around Mars and back, not landing on the moon and back. That was for Neil and the gang on Apollo 11 a few years later. Instead, during the six-day journey through space, the mission remained the same. As the Church of Christ, we have a mission to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey all that Christ has commanded. In the midst of all the challenges and the ups and the downs, that will remain our objective until the end of the age. And Jesus has promised to be with us all the way through that point. Today we're finishing up our afterwards series on the note of connecting what we believe to the mission that we're on. The reason being is that what we believe has bearing on what we set out to do and how we should set out to do it. Now, we recently spent a few sermons on our church's mission statement just a few months ago, which I'm not looking to repeat that this morning, but rather to consider our broader mission as believers by first acknowledging that we can hear a phrase like make disciples and often wonder, where, where do I even start? Or how am I supposed to proactively press ahead in trying to make disciples when I can't stand up under what I'm already dealing with? Or I know that's the goal, but I just have no motivation. I feel like I have no gas in the tank. Here's what we want to come away with today. We participate in the mission of making disciples of Jesus Christ as those sent by Jesus himself and empowered by his spirit to save and mature those who are his. You really do have a part in what God is doing. He has chosen to enlist his people as key players on what he plans to accomplish. Regardless of our condition, in spite of our weaknesses and our Moses-like stutterings, including our histories and our sinful mistakes, we are invited to participate in a mission. We're generally familiar with that fittingly named Great Commission in Matthew 28, but this passage in John 20 is another commission passage. It's not identical to, to Matthew 28, as you notice the, Jesus' language is different. He's 
He's kind of going after something a little bit different. And it was delivered at a different time. John records what Jesus said just after he was raised as opposed to just before he ascended, like in Matthew 28. And I think that this great commission of John's will, will serve as another angle to what Jesus is calling us towards. Namely, that we participate in this disciple-making mission as those sent out by Jesus himself and empowered by his spirit to save and mature those who are his. Apart from a really memorable and brief interaction with Mary Magdalene at his tomb, these are some of the first words Jesus speaks to his disciples after conquering death as the risen Lord, which those should carry a certain weight for us. On the disciples' end, though, they were simply scared. To them, Jesus was totally gone, and they were on the run from the Jews. They, they were at this sort of, of dead end, and not, they just didn't know where to go from this point. Lo and behold, Jesus appeared to them in a locked room somehow, and to that room of surprised and scared and doubtful faces, he says, peace be with you. Could you imagine John, the author of this gospel, whom we're told was present at the crucifixion, who saw his friend, his teacher, his Lord torn to pieces and hanging dead on a cross, now completely bewildered that Jesus is alive, standing in the room within arm's reach. And as they hug him and rub their eyes in disbelief, Jesus perhaps settles everyone down and then immediately lays out this mission that he has planned ahead for the disciples upon his resurrection and prior to his departure into heaven. So first he says, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. So the first point is that God has a mission. God has a mission. What's he out to do? What's he up to these days? The same thing he's been up to since he created all things. In fact, we're reading from John this morning, which is number 43 of 66 writings in this Bible. But these, these 66 books talk about a lot of things. But as a whole, they outline the past, the present, and the future of what God is out to do. He is out to redeem a people for himself to dwell with forever, as Pastor Steve often reminds us. And he will also restore all things in the process. God is out to redeem from sinful humanity a people to dwell with and to restore all things. This quote was helpful considering the, 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 the Bible being evidence um, of what God is out to do. Charles Tabor says, the very existence of a Bible is undeniable evidence of the God who refused to forsake his rebellious creation. We would, we would not have this if God refused or if he chose to forsake completely his rebellious creation. Who refused to give us, who was and is determined to, to give up, I think it's give up on us who was and is determined to redeem and restore fallen creation to his original design for it. The very existence of such a collection of writings testifies to a God who, who breaks through to human beings, who discloses himself to them, who will not leave them unilluminated in their darkness, who takes the initiative in reestablishing broken relationships with us. So this whole 
word of God stands as a testimony to us that God is out to accomplish something. And at this point in, in God's redemption story in John's gospel, Jesus, in just a few words, as the Father has sent me, is saying that God accomplishing his all-time mission involves sending him into a sinful world. He was sent as the Son of God who was born as a child to come and die for the sins of the world so that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life, as John records. The goal is to redeem a people for himself to dwell with. And as Jesus also says in John 14, 6, I am the way. I am that way. No one comes by the Father but by me. This is it. This is how the mission gets accomplished. Jesus is the sent one. He was the anointed one sent to bring good news to the poor, to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives. If you looked back at chapter 1 of John, you'd find that he came into a dark world as light, and his own did not receive him. He was sent, but he was rejected. All of this was so that God would receive a wicked people cleansed from their sins in order to dwell with us and us with him forever to the praise of his glory. Jesus being sent was the definitive proof that God will accomplish what he set out to do. He promised Jesus' coming back in Genesis 3.15 to, to Adam and Eve who had just rejected God and, and caused this plague of, of eternal death to sweep across humanity. He said, I'm, the seed of the woman is going to crush the head of the serpent. That was thousands of years prior. And he followed through with it to show that he's serious about his power and his ability to ensure that that mission is completed according to his infinite power, his wisdom, his planning, his execution. God has a mission. So as the Father has sent me, even so, I am sending you. Point number two, we are being sent into God's mission. Jesus was sent to save us from sin and death. He's, he's the rescuer. He's the sent one. We were never made to occupy that spot or to somehow be a carbon copy of Jesus and what we're trying to accomplish. That is reserved for the glorious Lord who humbled himself and has been exalted with a name that is above every name. But do you think it's interesting that Jesus says, as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. Jesus is making a direct comparison between the way in which he came into the world and the way in which we are sent into the world as his disciples. He was sent from somewhere by someone. He was sent from his eternal throne in heaven to this world by his Father. Likewise, the Christians of this church have been sent from a place of knowing the eternal God out into the world by risen King Jesus. You, like Jesus, are a sent one. You're flung out into the world with a specific purpose. Okay, so, so we're being sent. To do what? God's mission is not identical with ours. He has set out to redeem a people for himself to dwell with forever and to restore all things. We aren't redeeming 
a people for ourselves to dwell with. We're not mini-gods gathering our own following set to rule over our own planet someday. Think of it like this. Think of God's mission as the largest nesting doll of a set of nesting dolls. God's mission is to redeem a people for himself to dwell with forever and to restore all things. That's the overall goal. Okay, crack that open. What's inside? What's inside of God setting out to do this? You look in and you'll see Christians from every corner of this earth making disciples, proclaiming the good news of Jesus, gathering together, regarding the poor and the sick and the forsaken and the outcast, celebrating the Lord's Supper, baptizing, working to the glory of God, sending and being missionaries. That's how God has chosen to accomplish his purpose. It's through us. So he's got his mission. He has his goal. But how is it going to come about? It's through us through his weak and frail children. And you know what? He would have it no other way. He has, he has made it so according to his perfect wisdom. He has called us to participate in what he's doing. Have you ever asked your, your child or someone less skilled than you to help with the task just so that they could be a part of it, even though you know you could do it better without them? Anybody been there? Think of it this way. The Lord of the universe who who invented gravity and complex trig and rocks that can be turned into jewels, who has infinite power and wisdom, who could very well zap all of his elect into believers right now, has chosen that his mission will not go forward apart from us. Because he is glorified in his children being fruitful, multiplying, filling the earth with his glory by calling people from the highways and the hedges to come and to walk together as they follow him in holiness and faithfulness. That's humbling and astounding to know in some way God has made it so that you have a, have a part to play in this. And he will not accomplish his overall purpose without you, you striving and you, by the power of his spirit, going to make disciples, working hard at that, praying towards that. He, he is weaving that into what he is doing. So now you find yourself on a path as one commissioned and sent by Jesus, but now what? How do we fulfill our role in this mission? I just have a couple of applications that you could add so much more, uh, but just a few things that I feel like may or may not be specific to us as a church. Um, first, don't count yourself out. Um, whether you feel hesitant to specifically lead people in understanding Christ and follow him more fully or whether you just feel simply down and out, you are still included in God accomplishing what he's doing. Your weakness and your limitations and what you're suffering through are not disqualifying. That's not to say that those situations or ailments or traumas don't loom large in your life. They do and they're exceedingly difficult. But there's not a single person here who is useless in God's service to carry out his mission. We, we prayed for Sassy a minute ago, and it was just remarkable to, to, to be with her as she's recuperating in the hospital. And she is, is reminding me of Psalm 103 and the promises that she's holding on to. Bless the Lord, O oh my soul, and forget not all his benefits. And I'm sitting there thinking, she might feel down and out. Sassy, if you're listening, this is not to embarrass you. She might feel down and out. And yet she is still 
we are still in this, we're still in the game. We're still a part of this process of making disciples. You might, you might feel frail. You might feel like you have absolutely nothing to offer. You're not down and out. And my encouragement is not for you to just get in the game, but in your frailty to say, Lord, how can I join your mission even if those efforts feel tiny and unusable? They're not, and you are not, unusable. Second, you can be ashamed that you have a clear agenda. Now, I know that agenda can be a little bit of a buzzword, but um, when it comes to making disciples, um, I think we can move forward with a clear sense of uh, this is what I need to do regardless, regardless of what may come. Our life and relationships might not be a, a nonstop evangelism effort per se as far as like, okay, all of my conversations only can consist of evangelism, but they should be evangelistic to some degree. Our goal is that people would hear about Jesus and would be rooted and grounded in love. That's why uh, we can be in a friendship and be constantly reminding that person, this is my greatest desire for you, that you would know Jesus. That's not to negate that we're friends or that, that uh, I, I can be a coworker with you or, or whatever. But it is to say, I just want you to know why I'm here and what, what I feel like is the driving responsibility of my life. Uh, I don't, that said, I don't think that Jesus was with tax collectors uh, saying, I'm just here for the evangelistic opportunity. Instead, he, he took a real personal interest in those people, like Zacchaeus. And yet, underneath that relationship was a deep, deep controlling desire for those people to know God and be a part of his kingdom. Now, if it feels like I'm mixing uh, discipleship, like helping other people grow in the knowledge of Christ and helping them obey Christ further and evangelism, sharing the gospel. I'm doing that on purpose because they, they are under this same umbrella. We, this is something we are all called to participate in. Um, so I just, I don't want that to get confused or conflated, but those are, those are ways in which we are making disciples of Jesus Christ. So we must move towards those who are lost. We are being sent into the world. We are enter into people's lives who, whose minds are darkened to the truth. Even if they're rich and their life is put together, we move towards those who are in desperate need of practical helps and those who are hurting, but we move towards them with a clear message. Remember that our goal is that they would know Christ. That's, that's our deepest desire. We want that to be our desire. Number three, consider places into which you are already sent. You have children, you have patients, employers, employees, clients. You are connected to countless people throughout the day where you find yourself spending time with this person and that family in our church. You're married. You're sitting next to the person at the BMV or the doctor's office for a half hour. You visit your grandmother a few times a month. You spend countless hours with your kids at home most of the day. You are in touch with old college friends. You have rare moments with extended family at gatherings. The relationships are there. They're happening. You're flung out into the world at some level in the things that you're already doing. 
How is it that you are making disciples in those places you are sent to by bringing people into contact either with the good news of Jesus Christ for the first time or how might you start bringing into play the word of God which is living and it's active and it discerns the thoughts and intentions of the heart? How is it that you as a maturing believer are looking behind you and around you to those who need to further learn Christ and more fully love, worship, obey, and proclaim him? There are countless ways in which you are one sent by Jesus Christ into another person's life so that they may either follow Christ, grow in Christ, or ultimately reject him, as we'll talk about in a moment. That's the reason why you are in their life. It's the reason why you live next to so-and-so and not somebody else rather than the person up the street or the apartment one row over. It's why you have the family that you do. Because Jesus is redeeming a people, and it very well could include them. Let's be clear that this isn't something that happens by osmosis, per se. We don't, we don't accidentally or automatically make disciples. So if you're having a hard time right now thinking of ways in which you're actively involved in helping others know and follow Christ, friend, you may, you may find yourself in the seat of someone who has become idle concerning following Christ. Because if we're not giving ourselves to this task, then we are not functioning as a New Testament church or we're not being faithful to follow Jesus in the singular task he has given us to fulfill. So with that, number four, consider ways in which you are being called to be sent for the first time. Whether you're participating in Christ's mission in consistent ways already or not, I think at various times we we're all being invited to, as Jesus did, to pierce into the darkness of the world in ways that we would not otherwise do unless we believed in the gravity and worth of obeying Jesus' command to participate in this mission. In other words, have you considered new ways in which you might further take part in the making of disciples, which will require steps of faith? What ambitions has God given you that have been sitting on you for a long time that you so desire to do? Things that you have longed to do and simply need courage or resources or just extra hands. Now, I'm going to give, give a couple of examples. I'm not tasking people to, to do these things, but just the smattering of, of thoughts just to get our, get our hearts churning as, Lord, what? Where is it that you want me to press ahead in the making of disciples? What if, what if you have a heart for a specific group of people that needs help and needs the gospel, so you start a nonprofit geared specifically to that group of people? What if you want to gain tools and pray towards taking strides and sharing the gospel with whomever you have a few minutes to do so with? What if it looks like teaching in a kid's classroom and showing the next generation of our church that God is more amazing and loving than they could ever know? Uh, just a, a piece and a plug, twofold purpose here. I wanted to introduce you to this, but also consider it as if, if there are ways in which you want to press ahead with your kids, for example, um, what if it's a basic step to start? This is a, a, a brief excerpt of, of a storybook Bible on Easter. We handed some of these out at Christmas, but there's more in the back for families to take a copy of. What if it's just sitting down and over the course of Lent, which begins Wednesday and has several Sundays 
included before Easter? What if we read through this several times? What if we, what if we just start exploring this together? And, and even if my, my child is little, little, to start their life knowing something about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. What if, what if it's singling out three other people to start reading the word of God together, growing in friendship and love for one another? What if it's attempting to be more involved at your HOA meetings to get to know your neighbors, gathering others to pray for and be vitally involved in local political spheres, taking part in what is going on at the church with increasing regularity, asking deeper questions when you're with your friends who you have dinner with regularly? Friends, it's, it's literally innumerable. You, you have to fill in the blanks here of the ways in which we could prayerfully and obediently consider how we could further participate in making disciples. It could be with unbelievers. It could be with believers. But it still requires faith to say, Lord, I want to be a part of what you're doing in increasing ways. Help me do that. Give me your spirit. Open doors for the gospel, for deeper unity and in conversation with my brothers and sisters for a shared desire to do your work together with them. The reality is that not a day has gone by when you are not being invited to participate. And not a day will go by where you are not being invited to further do God's will, which is for us to make disciples, individually and also as a church body. Now what assurances do we have as we go? Two times in this passage, Jesus says, peace be with you. You will not go and make disciples without the Prince of Peace assuring you along the way, helping you through anxious moments, giving you courage, always present even if you feel silent. Peace doesn't mean lack of persecution or disapproval from others. It means that we will not escape from Jesus' own blessing and the potential for inner calm among difficulties as we go. So we have the assurance of peace. We also have the assurance of the Holy Spirit. Jesus breathed and said, receive the Holy Spirit. Now this is a little confusing because weren't the disciples told in Acts 1 to wait in Jerusalem for the promise of the Father to come, which was the Holy Spirit. That was a bit later than what's happening here in John. So did they receive the Spirit here or not when Jesus breathed on them? There's a lot of different views here, but it seems like this reception isn't immediate. Uh, it builds expectation for Acts 2 to wait until they receive the Spirit, which would undeniably come. And they would begin living as sent ones, proclaiming Christ to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. Regardless, the point is, you and I have been sent. But we've been sent with a helper. And, and by helper, I mean the one who is all-knowing, who knows the heart of God and who has power to make you a witness to Christ. We have promised peace as we go. We have the Spirit as we go. Our last point is a brief one to try to make sense of a somewhat confusing verse, verse 23. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Point three is that some will be saved as we participate in his mission and some will not. The easiest way to make sense of this is to think again of our mission as an extension of God's. 
Paul calls it the ministry of reconciliation that we've been given and are now enacting by God's power, 2 Corinthians 5. What happens when you explain to someone that Jesus died for their sins, which earned them the wrath of God, and that he rose again that they may have eternal life, and he ascended into heaven, and you invite them to believe what you're telling them, what happens? Whether it's the first time or the tenth time they've heard it, they either believe or are hardened. They either refuse and continue in their sins, or their sins are forgiven. How is that? We as God's church are not doing the forgiving or the condemning. That's God's job. But as we carry the message to people, it produces either real forgiveness or real condemnation. This final verse is, is a description that what we're doing really does have eternal implications for the people to whom we're bearing witness about Christ. Which on the one hand is, is troubling and, and saddening. Some will refuse. Some will retaliate. The person on their deathbed may go on rejecting God's offer of free grace. Some, when they hear, will be hardened, and what was already true may be confirmed once or over and over again that they will die in their sins. But church, shouldn't the alternative be enough for us to still try? Some people will be saved by Jesus Christ and be given the free gift of eternal life through our witness. One day it might click for your child. One day that person you've been praying for may do an about face and be made a completely new person in Christ. That moment where you felt like you just fumbled over and coughed up the gospel, might yield eternally glorious fruit. God would have, have us forever keep the doors of our hearts open to that possibility, that if I proclaim this gospel of Jesus to the hardened or the unsuspecting or the friend or the stranger, they may hear it, and the Spirit may in a moment give new life and enable them to repent of their sins and believe in Christ. That always, always, always remains as a very valid possibility with the most hardened or addicted or broken or undesirable or familiar or old or young person. We must keep that glorious possibility in front of us, even when we're defeated or attacked or tired or scared or you've tried before. Church, let's let this Keep us going. Let this soften our hearts toward believing that no person is beyond the saving power of Christ. And let it draw us to participate all the more in what God is doing through his people. Apollo 8 was the first manned spacecraft to leave Earth's orbit. It approached the moon, orbited 10 times, and in approximately a week's time, the command module landed in the Pacific Ocean. Round the moon and back, mission accomplished. As we arrive at home in heaven from our sojourning in this world, after we've cared for others and shared the truth of Christ and confronted the lies of the evil one and seen souls saved and others hardened and judged by a just God, I pray that he will say of us, well done, good and faithful servants. You were sent you were dedicated to the task appointed. And then one day, church, there's, there's going to be a day when the Lord of all things, Jesus, 
gathers his bride to dwell with him in a newly created heaven and earth. And to the praise of his glorious grace, he will be able to proclaim to all of creation and heaven and hell and all peoples, mission accomplished. It will be so. All the more reason for us to participate. All the more reason to dedicate ourselves to the task at hand. We want to see Jesus glorified in that moment when all is complete, when the mission is accomplished. 